Oh, isn't it nice to belong to a place that's so spontaneous? <laughs> really takes the pressure off all of us. I think it's a great job, Randy, yeah. or Shane, whatever your alias is this week. Everybody enjoy, speaking of spontaneity, our spontaneous snowstorm yesterday. Everybody enjoy that as much as I did? Yeah. That's why I'm glad I don't belong to the church I grew up in because swearing was one of the deadly sins. <laughs> glad we don't directly hammer that one because I would have blew that yesterday. <laughs> huh. Thank you for coming today. We're talking about what I consider to be a great topic. We're working our way through the book of Romans and uh, talking about some of our fundamental foundational beliefs. Uh, I know that at Hope we seem to spend a lot of time on the basics, but the fact is being brilliant in the basics is so critical not only to how we live our own lives, but it also affects the message that we carry to other people. So to stay salty, to stay, to stay sharp, when it comes to these understandings, I think is critical because we're going to get a little bit in today about how our heads work. <laughs> That's always one of my personal favorite topics. And I've heard one guy explain it as he has an automatic forgetter. It's so easy. And we see that in the New Testament, how entire churches could just drift off course because their beliefs went back to what they used to believe. So again, I think it's critical that we revisit these things uh, to be repetitive because of how we think. Uh, we're going to begin by reading our passage today that we're specifically dealing with. Uh, I put it on the back of our worship bulletin here, but we're going to start by reading today's passage out of the eighth chapter of Romans, uh, the first 17 verses. The Bible says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation 
but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I had a chance to uh, give Mike a break up here about a month ago, and we talked uh, a little bit, laying a foundation under this, by revisiting some fundamentals back in the Old Testament specifically back in the book of Genesis. And just to revisit a little bit of that, uh, it took me a long time to see the purpose of the Old Testament, but it's become increasingly more obvious that the reason why God gave us that Old Testament was really to, as an educational tool to show us what doesn't work. Those who ignore the mistakes of the past are doomed to repeat them. And I think those of us who don't understand exactly what was going on in the Old Testament were kind of doomed to incorporate a lot of those same mistakes even into our modern lives and our modern theology. So if we take a broad view of that Old Testament, but look at it through the lens of seeing what doesn't work, To me, it makes a lot more sense. For instance, God in the Old Testament gave us law. And the law couldn't save us or correct us. The law didn't work. Sometimes God resorted to punishment. But what we learn from that is pain will not correct us. God gave us kings to show us that leaders don't always have our personal best interests at heart. And that strong leaders often, uh, not often, always will fail to save us. And God also sent prophets to show us that knowledge and information cannot save us. Uh, in the Old Testament, sometimes God instilled fear to show us that fear isn't going to keep us on the right track. My favorite example of that is Moses disappears up the mountain, and it's not long, and they gave up on him as they're terrified a little bit earlier in that in that account where they're shaking and fear, the mountain's trembling, almost to the point of death. And as soon as Moses disappears, the next thing you know, they're baking a golden calf. <laughs> thinking, well, we better fix this ourselves, so let's make one of those instead. How crazy that is. You can be that scared, but yet that easily distracted into fixing things in a different way. So we learned that fear didn't work. Uh, God gave some men wisdom to show that even the wise aren't always that smart. <laughs> and what we learned from their examples is the wise are also not always that spiritual. Um, He gave other men riches to show that money doesn't always keep people on the right track. And often the lesson there is that money makes things worse. We go the opposite direction when we have too much of stuff. And 
Well, he even established religion in the Old Testament, and amazingly, even religion could not save us. So once we see all the things in there that didn't work, there's one other thing that he gave us, and that's what we talked about a little bit last week, how there's this comparison and contrasting in the Bible between God and Adam. And Adam being referred to as the first man in the Bible, and it also refers to Christ as the last Adam, which is interesting. And I don't think I made the main point of that very well a few weeks ago, but what I meant to say, because the best services and meetings I ever attend are the ones on on my way home from meetings. <laughs> when my head tells me what I could have been said or should have been said, those are really good. <laughs> Much better than the ones I'm actually physically in. And But the point of Adam, I believe, is to show us that mere human beings cannot save us. Because here is a man who was created first human and then made spiritual by having God breathe his spirit into Adam. And in giving Adam everything that God had. He was created in the image and likeness of God. He was smart like God. He was uh, brilliant like God. Adam was loving and kind and gentle like God. He had God's qualities put into him. But he was still a human being first. And I believe the real lesson of the story of Adam is being human, even in a pre-fallen state. At one point, if you think about it, In human history, all of our money was on Adam, wasn't it? Adam for the win. Come on, Adam. If he just says no, we're all going to live in paradise, everything's going to be great. But he blew it. And even in his state that he was created in, he couldn't not blow it. Because, you know, sometimes it sounds like a cop-out to say, well, we're only human. But really, that's just the honest truth. Adam was only human. And the main difference between him and Christ was that Christ was created spiritually first because he wasn't created. He was, Jesus Christ always was, is, and will always be God himself. He is God Almighty. Jesus was not a created being like Adam. He always was, because he is one of the three manifestations of God. So what happened 2,000 years ago was this God puts on human flesh and became fully human. Now, false religions, some say that uh, Jesus was just fully human. They acknowledge he was real and he was a man, but they deny his divinity. He was just a a human being that was really uh, spiritual. (laughs) And we're going to get into the definition of that word here in a little bit. He was just a really spiritual guy and a good man and a great teacher, but he was just another prophet, another human. There's others that acknowledge his divinity but deny his humanity. Other false religions that say, well, he was a ghost, an apparition. He was God, but he was never really in the flesh because that would make him less than God. So they deny that he was human. And it sometimes gets a little confusing how you can be both. 
But that's exactly what this passage that we read is going to tackle today and hopefully make good sense by the time we're done if if I do my job right. <laughs> but even if I don't, I'm just going to sound great on the way home. Uh, so with that foundation of what doesn't work, and what the main lesson is of the Old Testament, because I heard somebody say one time, lessons are what you get when you don't get what you want. <laughs> I learned the hard way that lessons are sometimes you get even when you get exactly what you want. <laughs> I, still, there's even when I get what I want, it blows up in my face. So the basic thing that I believe this is telling us is simply natural can't fix the spiritual. There is no natural solution for a spiritual problem. Just like sometimes there's not a spiritual solution for a natural problem. If I break my arm, that's a physical problem, and all the prayer in the world isn't going to fix that arm. I'm still going to pray for other things because prayer can help in a lot of ways. But if I have a physical problem, it needs a physical solution. If I have a spiritual problem, on the other hand, I need a spiritual problem solution. And that's why this world that we're living in has a lot of problems. Durr. <laughs> we, we all see that every day. But I believe the main problem in this world is a spiritual problem. And the lessons, again, of the Old Testament is our politicians can't fix it. There is no political solution for a spiritual problem. You can't throw money at it because all the money in the world is not going to fix this world's problems. People cannot fix this world's problems. Uh, education can't fix it. The courts can't fix it. Passing more laws isn't going to fix it. Uh, building more jails isn't going to fix it. Even religion as we define it is not going to fix a spiritual problem. And you see, that's why the New Testament is all about the one thing that does work. Because the one thing that does work is not a thing, it's a person. One of the most profound things I learned when I started to investigate Christianity is that unlike all of these churches and all these religions, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. That's huge. Because I thought, well, Christianity is a mere religion. And if it's a religion, all it is is some man-made way of man getting back to God, of bridging that chasm. Christianity, on the other hand, is totally unique because it's the story of God coming to us and establishing a relationship with us. Sometimes we talk about we're looking for God as though he's the one that's lost. <laughs> that's amusing. He's looking for us. Now, we might be searching for him too, but primarily we're the lost ones. He's the one that's doing the looking. So once we understand the value of relationship, we also can understand what the real problem is in this world. Because what is the battle, the real battle that's being fought out there? Some people would say it's about good versus evil. Some people would say it's God versus the devil. Good, G-O-O-D, 
God, G-O-D. Evil, E-V-I-L. Devil, D-E-V-I-L. So good and evil, God and the devil, and that's true. Uh, Christianity is more about the battle between truth and deception than it is good and evil, however. And that's why I love how Mike puts it in that the real battle in this world isn't the battle out here so much as the battle in our minds. It's a battle of beliefs. And it's our beliefs that then dictate our behaviors. I know that one of Mike's favorite quotes, I think it's Thoreau, who said, for every hundred people whacking away at the leaves of sin, there's one striking at the root. And that's why I love Hope Community Church, because from the foundations, what we've always tried to accomplish here is to attack the world's problems and our own personal ones by striking at the very root, not dealing with behaviors. And some think people think, well, that makes us uh, lily-livered or weak or weak on sin or whatever, but it's exactly the opposite. The greatest spiritual truth I've ever been taught is so brilliant but yet so simple. It goes like this. God will always change your behavior by changing your desire. See, this is what authentic spirituality, what Christianity looks like in practical application. Because what I learned is we always do exactly what we want to do, don't we? I don't want to get all psychological on you. Some people know I'm not a big fan of modern psychology. But what I'm about to say really isn't psychological so much as purely practical. It's that, and that I had to chew this a while myself before I swallowed it, because I thought, well, I don't always do what I want to do. I went to work last Monday. I sure didn't want to do that. <laughs> but I wanted to go to work more than I wanted to be unemployed. I wanted to go to work more than I wanted a short paycheck. So even if 51% of me wanted to go to work, that's the day I go to work. The day I wake up and 51% of me wants to stay in bed, that's the day I call in sick. So by that measure, we always do what we want to do. If an alcoholic, if only 40, 51% of him wants to stay sober, that's good enough. They're going to be miserable. It'll be white-knuckle sobriety, but they won't drink that day. If I wake up some morning and 51% of me wants to twist off, <laughs> I'm gone. So now if I can get it up to like 99% of me wants to do the right thing, it's easy. The closer I get to that tipping point, the harder it is. But ultimately, it's about desire. We always do what we want to do. And if that is true, then really what we have is a battle of desires. And that's why what we really need is a change of heart, a change of desire. And that is what makes the impossible possible. How many times haven't we heard somebody say, I don't, you know, I can't do that because I don't want to. Now imagine if you did want to. 
and you were given the power to do it. And this is where we start to understand a little more of what authentic spirituality really looks like. But it all starts in the mind. And that's why in this passage we read right in the middle, if you look at this, this one, uh, the second paragraph in here, notice how many times, six times, it references our thinking problem. It references our mind. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It, meaning the mind, does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So what that tells us is we have a thinking problem. We have a battle of beliefs in our own head. And that's why Hope Community Church is went to such great lengths to address how we think and what we believe. It's not so much about changing this. It's about changing this. And what we learn in here then is that if the battle that I have is really in my own head, how do I fix that? It's been explained to me that I can't fix the head I've got with the head I've got. That, to me, is like pushing myself in a wheelbarrow. It sounds great until I try to do it. I can't outthink my thinking problem. But what we can do is what this passage today tells us to do. And before we get into this too deep, I love how Mike explained this the other day, is that There's two different terms you hear thrown around in this world. One of them is free will. The other is self-will. It's a misunderstanding to believe that we as human beings have free will. Because to accurately define our terms, free sounds like free. Free to do anything. But we're limited in a lot of ways. And one of the main limitations that we have is we are free to choose our master. We are not free to be the master. Bob Dylan probably put it as good as anyone when he said, you got to serve somebody. Rather, I turn to the left or the right. There are spiritual forces in this world that are trying to influence me to go one direction or the other, and when I go that way, it will please one or the other. So there's really not free will, there is only self-will. I I have my will that I can align either with my lower nature, the flesh, or my higher power, which is God. But I get to vote, I get a choice on which direction that I'm going to take. But either way, I am still subject to some kind of control. So, you know, when I think, and you see, part of the lie in the Garden of Eden was that man was free to be his own master. I remember at one point in my studies, we actually, uh, some of us actually read the Satanic Bible. Don't recommend it. 
But I'm also not superstitious because I believe it's bad luck to be superstitious. <laughs> so <laughs> didn't think anything was going to jump off on me if I just read this thing. And, but it was really interesting. Because I, having not known anything about the Satanic Bible, uh, I assumed it was just the mirror image or the anti-Bible. So just like the Bible says God is God and Jesus is God and you got to love God and serve God and make sacrifices to God and profess God, I thought that's what the Satanic Bible would say. you got to love Satan and serve Satan and Satan is Lord and you got to make sacrifices to him and do all this other stuff. That's not at all what it says. Do you know what that book does say? It doesn't say the devil is God. It says you are. You are God. And because you are God, you don't have to give up nothing. You don't got to serve nothing. You don't have to sacrifice anything to nothing. You are the focal point, and you are there to get everything, and the satanic church is there to facilitate you getting everything your little heart desires. That's an easy sell, isn't it? You are God. What was the lie in the garden? For surely you shall not die, and for you shall be as gods. And interesting, one of the lies of much modern psychology is four things. Love yourself, save yourself, serve yourself, and forgive yourself. And I'd add a fifth. Push yourself in a wheelbarrow <laughs> and take a YouTube video of it. <laughs> I want to see how that works. In Christianity, the whole point is I can't save myself. If I could, baby, I would have tried. And I'd like to think, just like all our money was on Adam back in one time of our history, I like to fool myself by thinking maybe I could have done a better job than him. <laughs> You put me in that garden and give me everything and make me perfect and you give me like the knowledge of God and all this stuff and take away all my pain and provide everything I need and want and provide companionship. I could resist temptation because I already have everything I need, right? Wrong. It wouldn't work for me any better than it would work for him. I can't save myself, let alone I can't save you. And I can't serve myself because I knew even as a little kid, I can't provide for my own needs sufficiently. I don't have what it takes. And I know I can't love myself. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. I can transmit only what I receive. Uh, and I can't uh, forgive myself. Forgiveness has to be meted down from a higher authority. I could go down to the courthouse and stand, on the, stand in the hallway and forgive every prisoner that walks by me, and then where are they going? Back to jail. Why? I ain't the judge. <laughs> now, if I'm the judge and I tell them they're forgiven, they're free to go. But how can I forgive myself? That's... I can't go into a courtroom and be both the judge and the defendant. So there's a lot of misunderstandings and misconceptions that sound good. They sound right. Just like the Old Testament says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And 
So once I understand that the battle is really a battle of beliefs and a battle in the mind, then we talked here a lot about what doesn't work. Let's talk a little bit about what does. We talked about how Christianity is a relationship, not just a mere code of ethics or code of morals or a dry religion. And that leads to one of the most profound questions that I've ever encountered. Uh, I know I talked about this a little bit in some other teachings, but it's still, I think this is just heart and soul of everything we do in church. I'm a word guy. I like how we define words. I like understanding where they came from and what they mean because communication is so key. And I'm reading this thing a few years ago, and somebody asked this question that absolutely floored me. And I'm so angry at myself that I didn't think of it. <laughs> so I'm going, Kai, why didn't I see that? The question he asked was so basic. He says, what is the definition of the word Christian? I thought, wow, do you realize how many people throw that word around? Because we're a labeled society. We like labeling stuff. They, society will put labels on you, and psychiatry will put labels on you, and this guy's this, and that guy's that, and uh, we claim to be things. I'm this, I'm that. Uh, well, there's a lot of people that claim to be a Christian. And sometimes, like I was just having a great conversation with a guy I'm working with here uh you know, a few weeks ago, and he, I asked him, well, are you a Christian? Well, yes, I am. I go, okay, what's that mean exactly? Crickets. <laughs> he didn't need, see, if, if I stand up here and I tell you I'm a phlebotomist, and you go, I've never heard of that. What's a phlebotomist? I should be able to answer that question, shouldn't I? Well, what is a phlebotomist? I still don't know. <laughs> but... <laughs> But if I was one, I should be able to intelligently explain what makes me a phlebotomist. If I stand in front of you and claim to be a Christian and you ask me, okay, what's that mean exactly? I should be able to intelligently tell you what a Christian is. And it blows my mind because I started to realize how many different definitions there are of that word. What makes you a Christian? Well, I said the sinner's prayer. What page is that on? Oh, well, it's not exactly in the book, but <laughs> but I said the sinner's prayer. I made an altar call at a Billy Graham crusade, which is cool. Uh, I touched the television screen when the TV evangelist told me to, and then I sent him 50 bucks. Uh, <laughs> I'm a Christian because I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, the Bible addresses that when it says even the demons believe and tremble. They know who he is. They believe Jesus is the Son of God, but it didn't save them. Uh, what is a Christian? Uh, some people think they're a Christian because they're a good person, or their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, or they go to church, or they, they perform certain religious rituals. See, buried in today's text is what I've come to believe are the, is the only right definition of the word Christian. And it's kind of interesting to me, but right in the middle of our page here, it says, 
You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. That's a big if. (laughs) How do we know to our own satisfaction if we're in the flesh or in the spirit? And here it comes. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Hmm. There's translations, different translations of the Bible that go so far as to say, and they spell it out plainly, if you do not have Christ's spirit inside of you, you are not a Christian. You are not in him. Well, that's deep. (laughs) What made Jesus Jesus? Two things. Human body, divine spirit. God in him in a human body. What makes us Christians? Exactly the same thing. Human body, divine spirit. The message, the mystery of the gospel, the message of Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. When Christ died, he said, I have to die so I can release my spirit and send him back to you to dwell in you referring to that Holy Spirit as a paraclete, some like an advocate, someone, not a thing, but a person, God himself living in us. And now that, I think we'll admit, opens up a whole nother can of worms, doesn't it? (laughs) Because then the question becomes, okay, so how do I know if I've got this spirit thing? And again, you get into a lot of churches, a lot of religions, and they'll define that differently. Some of them, I attended those places. It's a little bit scary what they believe. Well, if I have the Spirit, it will be evidenced by speaking in tongues and laying on hands and casting out devils and doing all this woo-woo-woo stuff. And, And I'm not denying the reality of some of that. But there's also that powerful passage I quote a lot, that Christ himself saying, many will come to me on that last day, crying, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out devils in your name? And and do, um, and did we not do these signs and wonders and do all this woo-woo-woo stuff? And he said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. It's not like I kind of knew you, and then I, who are you again? I kind of, I haven't seen you in a while. You know, you kind of haven't, you know, you look familiar. (laughs) Doesn't say I forgot you. We said I never. We were never in a relationship. Hmm, interesting. And it's not that they weren't doing things, stuff, but you see, they were not doing what Christ said to do. Did Christ says, you know, you can do all that stuff, and that's great, and it can accomplish great things. But primarily, what did he tell his disciples to do? Feed my sheep. Feed, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick and imprisoned. Uh, you know, tend to those who have needs, even our enemies. Love your enemies. Love being a verb, not a noun. Love being something we do, not some warm, fuzzy thing we feel. And again, I'm not blowing up these churches. I'm not trashing them. I'm just trying to get our head around what authentic spirituality looks like. 
It's amazing in our society how many people want to claim to be spiritual. But as one of my spiritual advisors often said, he said, any time that you encounter something spiritual, you best ask yourself, which spirit? Amen. (laughs) There's a lot of things that are spiritual, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're of God. So authentic spirituality, I think, is spirit with a capital S. You'll notice in this reading and a lot of Bible passages, sometimes spirit is not capitalized. There's other spirits, the legal name for alcohol, coincidentally, distilled spirits. Hmm, coincidence? We think not. <laughs> there's, uh, But there's a lot of spirits out there, and it talks about our spirit, little s, that just means our soul, what makes us, gives us an inner being. That's a, referred to sometimes as spirit. But we're talking today about the capital S, spirit. So, how do you get that thing? (laughs) What hoops do you have to jump through? Well, you see, if there is such a thing as a pearly gate experience, where you die and go to heaven and St. Peter says, why should I let you in? The wrong answer always starts with, because I. (laughs) Because I did all these things. Because I did did things for you. The right answer always starts with because you, because he, because Jesus died for my sins, because Jesus opened the door to reconciliation between me and them. It's not about what we do, it's about what he did. So knowing that, what can or should we do when it's ultimately up to God? And the answer, I believe, is in here where it says... uh, In the book of Acts, the second chapter, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for all. Could it really be that simple? There's other passages, I didn't have room to put them in there, but there's passages in here that say things like uh, so Luke 11, ninth verse. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Repent. Change direction. Admit we're going the wrong way, and instead of running from God, do a 180 and face him and move towards him. That's repentance. Uh, baptism is an outer sign that an inner change has occurred. That's a cool thing. But baptism alone isn't going to save you because in the absence of spirit, you can attend religious things and you can get baptized for the wrong reasons. You could do it out of fear. You can do it out of obligation. You can do it out of guilt. But it's not the right heart thing. You can repent 
out of all of those things. But you see, what we're talking about is a God-given, authentic change of heart. So how do you really know? What's the evidence of that? You see, this world has a spiritual disease and a spiritual illness. And the evidence of that manifests in all kinds of wrongs. But just like if I'm physically sick, I'd need a microscope to see the germs or the virus that's making me sick in here. But it's very obvious I'm sick out here. If I'm throwing up, you could rightly assume I'm sick. (laughs) If I'm coughing and hacking and sneezing, you pretty much, I know I'm sick because of that. And all of the self-will in the world isn't going to change that. I've talked to drug addicts that you know, just say no, just don't snort that Coke. Well, I just want to see what it smells like. <laughs> I don't really want to sm- snort it. Or don't take that drink and, you know, and just white knuckle it. And, oh, you know, but, but willpower doesn't work on spiritual illnesses any more than it works on physical ones. I, the, kind of a little gross, but I remember sometimes I was in a situation one time where a guy was bragging about how much willpower he had. So this guy asked him, how does that work with diarrhea? (laughs) And apparently doesn't (laughs) any more than if I have to cough. If I'm around people and I've got a cold, I don't want to cough because I don't want them to avoid me. And I get enough of that when I'm not sick. (laughs) So, you know, you ever try not to cough when you need to cough? When it comes out, so... All the willpower in the world isn't going to fix this. So, but what will is a change of heart, a change of desire. And you see, so the evidence of how do we know if we've got this? I can't, we don't always feel differently. It's not something where you just know that you know. I mean, because our lying head is always going to talk us out of things. So there's always going to be doubt and confusion. Well, I don't know. Do I really have that spirit thing? And I, you know, I'm not able to do this or that. I don't feel any different. But the externals will manifest. And that's where in the middle of our worship bulletin that it says, uh, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Just like if you're sick, most of the time it's obvious to me and them. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. See, those are the fruits that grow out of the roots of this thing. In the absence of, that's what fallen people do. They shove anything and everything they can get their hands on to put in here in place of God to try and make it okay. Those are the acts of the flesh. What are the fruits of the Spirit? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's a teeter-totter thing. As time goes on, we find ourselves becoming more, becoming less angry and resentful and more forgiving. As time goes on, we find ourselves becoming less afraid 
And that's replaced, according to the Bible, by love. Perfect love casts out fear. As time goes on, we feel less guilt, shame, and remorse, and we start to experience the forgiveness that only comes from God. As time goes on, we feel less uh, uh, selfish and self-centered, and more and more we start to be more concerned about others and less concerned about ourselves. As time goes on, we start to be less jealous and envious of other people and more happy for their authentic successes. So this is the real evidence. And I guess another way of saying it is that what can we really expect to receive from God if his spirit is really not only with us but in us? I personally can boil it down to three things, knowledge, willingness, and power. What I experience personally is things start to get piped in from a different source. I've always had things piped in, baby. <laughs> if, if, if I trip on the sidewalk before I hit the ground, I know three people I should be mad at because of that sidewalk. And it's just pipe, and I, ten ways of getting even with them. <laughs> but that's piped in. But what gets piped in today is love. Love. Uh, and better thoughts, uh, different knowledge, knowledge of what I can give instead of get. And not only that, but the willingness, a change of heart where I want to do better things. And even then, if I want to and don't have the power, I fail. But God gives us the power to carry it out. If he gives us the better knowledge, a change of heart where we want to do it his way and the power to carry it out, what more do we need? And I think those are the real fruits of the Spirit and evidence that something very drastic has actually changed in our life. So, but that's, you know, we talk a lot here about the process. The process that has to precede this is reconciliation, grace. In the absence of grace, I cannot approach the throne of God with confidence because of Fear, fear of punishment, fear of condemnation. So in our ministry, by removing that, it opens up that pathway between us and him. So with that, we'll have our closing song, and we will, we will get on with our day. Lord, at the end of day, today's passage, it talks about admonishing us to share in your sufferings so we can also share in your glory. And I noticed in the Bible it never says you cried because of the pain inflicted upon you, but what made you weep was the pain you saw others suffer. You cried for them. And so with that right heart, Lord, help us to be quick to see the sufferings of others and help us, Lord, to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.